0: This is your home for St. Cloud State Hockey, keeping you up to date on the NCHC. And come in, they score! Ripped in! A bomb from
1: Perks.
0: Women's WCHA.
1: So Dana Rasmussen fires and she scores! Dana Rasmussen for the Huskies
0: the National Hockey League.
1: Dwayne Kaprizov in for a chance to
0: To another edition of the Huskies Warming House podcast for episode number 63. I'm not Nick Maxon, and uh, you're not Noah Grant. So we're going to get this thing rolling right away. You don't want to be God. me, do you, Nick? Yeah. No, I don't want to be in North Dakota. So I'm okay with that. You know what? Uh, actually, fun fact for hockey fans uh, I'm actually going to be in Minnesota in the St. Cloud area in July. And you and I might have a little bit of fun with that uh, related to the podcast. But nonetheless, that's in July. We have to get through May 1st. Unfortunately, the Minnesota Wild did get through May, but they've earned themselves a spot one more time, I would say, in our extra ice session. So we're going to touch on them a little bit. A very, very quick Huskies Illustrated Weekly Roundup this week. I kind of like it. We're starting to get back from the groove of what I thought the Weekly Roundup was going to be, uh, but we just have a lot of hockey news a lot a lot of the time. But nonetheless, uh, the last topic that we're going to touch on and the biggest topic of today is the Miami, Ohio Redhawks. We're going to recap their 2020-21 season and take a look to the season ahead in the NCHC for them. Without further ado, we'll start with the Huskies Illustrated Weekly Roundup. Center Ice View News and Notes. Center Ice View provides you with the best coverage of St. Cloud State Huskies hockey from game notes, recaps, photos, and more. Go to centericeview.com.
1: You know, it is a light week in the world of hockey news. All of but one NHL playoff series are ready to start round two today on Sunday. Colorado has the longest wait for their matchup with the Vegas Gold Knights, while Carolina moved to face Tampa Bay. Out East New York Islanders are currently down one to nothing in their second round series against the Boston Bruins, while Winnipeg awaits the game seven winner between Montreal and Toronto of North Noah's series. I don't think
0: either of us would have pegged to have gone seven games. Well, I would say if you follow Toronto hockey at all, uh, it might go seven games and it might not end well for the Leafs. I still have faith, but we're going to have to see here. Uh, That one might come back to bite me. Unfortunately, the Minnesota Wild did not take care of business coming close in their game seven matchup. And Minnesota Wild defenseman Jonas Brodeen will not need surgery, the team announced Saturday. The 27-year-old left Game 7 against Vegas after two shifts with a shoulder injury from an awkward hit by Nicholas Roy. Brodine had a career year this year with 23 points in 53 games. The Minnesota Wild will shift their attention to the NHL draft, where Michigan Wolverines defenseman Owen Power has topped Central Scouting's final North American skater ranking prior to the event on July 23rd.
1: Some other news around the NHL, no. First out on the West Coast, the Anaheim Ducks have announced that both general manager Bob Murray and head coach Dallas Aikens will return next year despite their 17-30-9 record, which that saw them finish second to last overall in the NHL standings this season. But overall, up in Edmonton, Hall of Famer, Wayne Gretzky has left his role as vice chairman as the Edmonton Oilers to now work as a new lead analyst for TNT Studios and Turner Sports, uh, which the deal is now was being reported as a three million dollar annual uh, salary for the great one for the
0: NHL's newest broadcast partner again in Turner Sports. Must be nice, Nick. I wish someone would throw us a a cool $3 million. That'd be super nice. But anyway, speaking of a cool $3 million and Wayne Gretzky, a recent rookie card of his sold for $3.75 million at auction last Thursday. Heritage Auctions of Dallas said Thursday that the 1979 Opeachy Gretzky card was in gem mint condition and went to an anonymous buyer. The card features the hockey great in his Edmonton Oilers uniform during the team's final WHA season before the franchise joined the NHL. The sale topped the online company's previous high for a hockey card. In December, they sold a Gretzky card from Professional Sports Authenticator for $1.29 million, which at the time was the first hockey card to exceed $1 million. The known record for a sports card also came this year when a 1952 Topps Mickey Mantle baseball rookie card sold for $5.2 million. And once again, welcome back into episode number 63. I'm joined alongside my co-host and Nick Maxson. I, of course, am Noah Grant. In case you didn't know that... um, if you didn't know that, you haven't been following us, and if you haven't been following us, I don't blame you. But nonetheless, Nick, how are you? How are you? Isn't that great promotion for the brand here? How are you doing on this uh, uh, Sunday?
1: Doing okay. Yeah, that's not a good way to earn a three million dollar contract with anybody. <laughs> We're just trying to pay the freaking light bill behind us, and uh, yeah, three million bucks still wouldn't probably even pay that for how much lighting that we have to
0: use. <laughs> I was gonna uh, say, I was going <laughs> to say fun fun fact: Nick Maxon's jersey fell down about five minutes before we recorded this, so it's been a tough day in the studio, I'd say. Studio needs some TLC. We'll put it to you that way. But uh,
1: no, it's it's good. It's a Sunday morning. I, I just had a nice cookout yesterday um, with some friends there smoking some ribs. Um, and They're actually, I, I know right. It's surprising. Um, I actually had to <laughs> set up the smoker, start the ribs, go to work. Go do that for seven hours, then come back and finish the ribs. So, I mean, yeah, it was
0: a long. It was a long. Kind, day. That's kind of your thing, though, isn't it? Kind of, kind of yeah. the smoke meats and stuff. That's kind of been your your bread and butter, if you will. It, it definitely has been, and I'm going to be doing the same thing again
1: today with uh, the the co workers. We're doing a kind of a, a bank outing per se. We're going to be doing some uh, cowboy cut ribeyes this time, so a little hey. bit different on the menu. Uh,
0: but uh, it should be should be pretty fun. I'm excited. Hey, I'm just saying, you already worked yourself in a hole. When Caleb Peabody gets a hold of this and listens to this and wonders why he hasn't been invited and doesn't have an order of, of ribeye, he doesn't care
1: about he doesn't care about ribeyes. All he cares about is Val's order with his shake, and that's okay. That's cheap.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, if that's the case, when I come when I come down to the cities, you're buying then. i with me
1: put it put it on the uh the husky Wormy now's uh, credit card which we don't have but <laughs> yeah yeah,
0: yeah. We, can, we can we can claw into that negative two thousand dollar deficit we've got anyway uh speaking of caleb peabody uh he was our winner and actually tops the leaderboard for season two of trivia our question yesterday uh congratulations to him uh the trivia question did read nick uh did you get a chance to take a look at the trivia question on twitter yesterday First I of did all, not, unfortunately. You
1: know, smoking meats is a labor of love, Noah. So I didn't have much time for anything else, unfortunately.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, that's all right. Screw the podcast, right, Nick? Pretty um, much. I kid, I kid. But that's a good thing because I want to see if you can get this. Minnesota Wild goaltender Cam Talbot finished with a 9.24 save percentage in seven playoff appearances this year. Who are the only other three Wild goalies in franchise history to play at least five playoff games in a single playoff run? And have a save percentage at 9.24 or above. Was it Fernandez and Rollison? Manny Fernandez is 1, 2002, 03, 9.29. He's the highest with nine games respectively. You got, oh, you know what? Nope, Darcy Kemper. Darcy Kemper does have a save percentage above, but he didn't play more than five games. Ooh. So with that save percentage, uh, I'll give you one more stab and then I'll tell you who the other two is. The Dubnik? Devin Dubnik is 1, 2016 17, 9.25. Okay. Yeah, one one more. There's one more. So it's a Pernini rules, and who else would have been there? I'll give you one hint 2006 07. Uh. (laughs) You're like, that didn't help. Nicholas Backstrom is the answer. A 924 save percentage tied with Cam Talbot there. Um, Yeah, kind of interesting. Manny Fernandez topping that list in 2002 03, but I suppose you got to have close to a 930 to. Calling your way back from a couple of three, one deficits. Wouldn't you say?
1: Uh, yeah. You know, two of the three game sevens, the wild uh, franchise have were in that same playoff year. And it, it seemed as it was kind of like this magical year of you. I remember watching both of those series and especially against Colorado, I don't think there was any real expectation that Minnesota was going to win that series. And then not only when you come back in the way that you did, and you know, back-to-back overtimes in game six, Richard Park game seven, Andrew Burnett, um, you effectively not only ended the playing career of a Hall of Fame goaltender in Patrick Waugh, but then you go up and uh, you're feeling good. You go down again, one to three against the Vancouver Canucks, and you still somehow find a way to come back. It was a a regulation win in game seven, but then you ran into John Sebastian, Jaguar, Tamu Solani, and the Anaheim Ducks, which swept the wild out of the playoffs before New Jersey ended up taking the cup in that year. Uh, So, (laughs) Minnesota just can't buy that you know that uh what do you call it that storybook that Cinderella ending where you know things just continue to go the way And for us we just seem to hit a brick wall at some point but uh you know, there's been some good moments. And uh, I know that later on, we're going to talk about some of the really good moments that the wild had this season, especially in the playoffs against the golden Knights. Yeah.
0: I think it's actually kind of interesting when you talk about Minnesota sports, I know we get frustrated quite a bit, but you got to think about in every league, there's only one team that makes it to the big dance and gets the job done. So, I mean, I think uh, we're just looking to push that playoff run deeper and deeper uh, when we're talking about the Minnesota wild, but another team, Nick, that's looking to kind of get back into the playoff realm, only doing it once in their tenure in the NCHC. That's the Miami Ohio Redhawks, Hawks, uh, sitting last year at 5 18 and 2 with their record 14.6% power play, 76% penalty kill, a minus 41 goal differential, 1.9 goals per game, 3.6 goals against, finishing last in eighth place in the NCAA. She technically tied for seventh at the Colorado College, but they had two more games played because of those games that the Tigers missed and 18 points on the year. Nick, uh, this group, uh, as we as we look at them just first overall, before we get to what they've lost and what they've gained, there's actually a lot of roster turnover for this group, which I think they're actually uh, kind of have an exciting wave of bodies coming in. But of course, losing a couple of really good players as well, too. Overall, last year, Miami was a group that I thought gave St. Cloud a little bit of fits, of course, splitting uh, with them when St. Cloud was in Miami. Uh, What was your impression of the Red Hawks team last year? Uh, I think they're a team that they know where they're at uh, essentially.
1: So they had to play, you know, sort of a defensive first structure. Um, They played physical. Now, mind you, Miami can skate still. Um, They're a team that I think is underrated for their speed. The one thing that they haven't had, uh, I think recently has been just that top end skill, um, and I think uh, Miami's due for a wave of that. I know that uh, uh, Bergeron, their head coach, is is looking to do. He's been doing some better recruiting, um, and now you know, just like Colorado college is in, you know, what's that next step look like we saw Nebraska Omaha sort of take that next step up in the rankings this last year, unfortunately it fell short, but I think Miami um, their speed is there. Uh, they definitely play physical. That's just a trait of, a, of, their coach. And, and I think, you know, if one thing I'm looking forward to this year is just to kind of see where that skill is and more. So can they definitely rebound on that goal scoring? Cause that hurt them a lot last year.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned uh, a team that knows where they're at. Of course, head coach Chris Bergeron in his third season, joined by his co- assistant coaching staff, Barry. Is it shoot or shut? I, I can never get that one correct. I think uh, it's shut, but I don't quote me on that. Yeah, apologies if we got that wrong, but we won't get this one wrong. The other assistant coach, of course, Eric Rude, former Sinclair State women's hockey head coach in his third season as well. Nick, you mentioned a team that knows where they're at. And I read an article last night about Chris Bergeron, and they kind of interviewed him, previewing about what he had coming up. And he said this quote: "The returning players, although the success hasn't been there, are going to be the core of the team. We aren't bringing in someone to hand the reins over to. It's going to be the returning 20 players who have to be the core of our group next year. Hopefully, the incoming kids can be good support to that." I thought that was kind of an interesting quote, you know, especially the piece that says. The returning players, although the success hasn't been there, are going to be the core of the team. What do you take out of that
1: quote? Well, let's read between the lines in the quote, right? I think what that means is, you know, it's there's nobody that's going to come in and be a savior for this hockey squad, which means that, you know, he believes not only in the 20 guys he has, uh, but it also means that the same 20 guys need to be better. They need to take a next step um, collectively as a group. Um like you mentioned, you know, this Miami when they played St. Cloud State, there were times where Miami was really, you know, given St. Cloud fits. They're a team that I think can really take teams, especially that are more higher in skill and higher in speed off their game. The big thing that again we talked about Miami is, you know, where was you know those timely goals? Where were those timely saves? They weren't getting those when they really needed them. And it sounds like from Bergeron, you know, this squad, he's gonna rely on what he had from last year a lot that he still has, and there's not gonna be you know, maybe that one big kid like St. Cloud had, like that team that's going to come in and maybe provide an extra jolt, an extra spark of offense. Uh, it's going to be an internal growth from this roster. And, you know, it's going to be a key to the success here for 2021-22.
0: Yeah, when you look at Miami's uh, turnover for their roster, uh, they lost a couple of, I think, especially on the forward and a couple of key guys that really made a, a strong impact. A couple of defensemen and goaltenders as well. Let's work our, our way from the back end up. First, uh, senior Grant Valentine. I don't believe he's going to return. Only seven games played uh, in a Red Hawks sweater. uh 3 uh, one in his tenure there, unfortunately. Never uh, gained a win there. And then junior Ben Cross transferring to Arizona State. 19 games played, uh, not the prettiest of numbers, and 8.72 save percentage, 113 and two for his record in that one. Unfortunately, like you mentioned, kind of the culmination of you know a team that just haven't hasn't been able to get over the hump in recent years. But I think they're kind of at that point almost where it seems like they're colorado college 2.0 where they're like the next edition of where colorado college what we talked about last week needs to go right there's they're starting that uphill climb uh and starting to starting to climb that mountain if you will on the defensive side rourke russell transferred as a grad transfer to sacred heart he had 29 points in 119 games played a uh, good solid defenseman on the back end and then 24 points in 108 games for alex mahalik who uh it was a senior and I don't believe he's returning. I could be wrong on all of these, but that's just what we have listed so far. Now in that forward group, Nick uh, Ben Lowne, uh, 116 games played 34 points. That's a nice little uh, chunk of production for him. Uh, Phil needs 126 games played and 49 points. And then the one that really hurts Nick is that transfer to Minnesota Duluth, Casey Gilling 100, 131 games played 77 points, 26 goals, 51 assists. Uh Nick, if you're Casey Gilling, because I know people, you know, talk about the transfer portal quite a bit. Uh, do you blame him for going to Minnesota Duluth? Well, I don't know if I
1: can speak for Casey Gilling. Um, you know, this is a kid that there's no question for a number of years. He was their highlight as far as offensive, you know, uh, spark. Uh, ben Lowne, I know you spoke with him, just a brief comment on him. He was a thorn every okay. time he was on the ice. He was a very, very good shutdown third line guy and uh, he's a guy that uh, can get under your skin he's a very effective role player and uh you know it's it's amazing with some of those Statistics, some of those things that don't really make the score sheet are off. You know, sometimes you miss the most, and Ben Long will certainly be missed in the Miami uh, depth chart. But when you go to Casey gilling he has the talent to be on a compete, on a nationally competitive team. Mm-hmm. And there's no question when you go to uh, Scott stanley and UMD, we'll obviously touch on them in the next couple of weeks, um, they're going into a roster that's so sound in their structure, in every single area of the ice, you know, it, Sanland, for whatever reason, he just gets his guys to buy in every single year. That team is always competitive. It doesn't matter if they start off slow. Um, so he sees an opportunity and at the end of it, you know, it's his choice as a, as a student athlete. Let's remember, these are students first athletes mm-hmm. second, that if you see an opportunity to go to a, a very good program in UMD, not again, taking thing away from Miami, But uh, he's getting towards the end of his collegiate career, and if he wants to have a crack at a national championship, um, he entered the transfer portal, he stays within the conference, which I think is also interesting. We talk about the promise of the NCHC, you have a lot of players sometimes staying within the conference and just switching, you know, different uh, squads, so... You know, you hope uh, Casey galing finds success. I think he will under Scott Stanley. There's not many players that don't find success under that coaching staff. <laughs> so let's be real. So uh, uh, again, you know, I, I just think that it came down to him. Again, he's an upperclassman now, and I think he figured that you know this is what I want, and he feels like this is the best opportunity for him to maybe try to take a crack at it.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree. I think when you watch Minnesota Duluth and the Frozen Four, right? How can you not want to, you know, have an interest in it if they have an interest in you? I think the other piece of this too, uh, you know, when you talk about uh, Casey, one, I think he's earned it. Like you mentioned, you know, he spent his time at Miami. He's given that program, you know, his blood, sweat and tears, if you will, and everything he's had to offer. And when you, when you look at his ability to stay in the conference, I think, you know, maybe that's a testament to playing against Duluth all those years and understanding, you know, what a formidable uh, powerhouse they are and knowing that you know, he was essentially, uh, in some ways, I think him and Gordy Green—they were kind of the guys, yes. if 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 you will—for for the Red Hawks. And now, uh Casey Gilling doesn't have to be the guy necessarily when he goes up to Duluth. I mean, I'm sure he wants to be, but sometimes it's a little bit easier knowing that you have that kind of one-two punch and like primary and secondary scoring with a deep team like Duluth offers. You know, it takes a little bit of pressure off of you as a forward unless you kind of play a little bit looser and go play your game. And for a guy that's got 79 points uh, in his career to this point, uh, I think. I, if he plays any looser it's a very very dangerous forward that uh, um, Duluth is very very happy to have moving into uh, the incoming players Nick uh, we've got a, a four person slash five person freshman class if you will because one of them is actually a transfer they've got six transfers coming in according to head coach Chris, Chris Bergeron I could only find four of them currently in the transfer portal so um, we'll keep you updated on that but Um, Starting with the freshman, Primo Self from Grand Rapids, Michigan, Nick Donato from Lake Forest, Illinois, Um, Red Savage in that uh, U.S. uh, U.A. team program from Scottsdale, Arizona. He's a heck of a heck of a hockey player and a good pickup. And his brother also plays for the team in Miami as well. Uh, And then the other freshman that's listed in their incoming freshman class. I'm going to butcher this name so bad, Nick. Uh, Frankie Caro Giello, I think. Um, C-A-R-O-G-I-O-E-L-L-O. Try that one out for size. Um, That one's a challenging one. Um, The fifth freshman that's actually listed is actually Paul or P.J. Fletcher, um, 34 points in 44 games with Dubuque in the USHL. He's actually a transfer technically from Quinnipiac um, that moves over to Miami. The three other transfers I have listed, uh, the big one, I think uh, we talked about two goaltenders that were leaving for Miami. Uh, one of them coming in is a sophomore, Logan Neaton, from UMass Lowell, six games played under his belt. Uh, defenseman Will Cullen, a junior from Bowling Green. This is a heck of a pickup, I think, for Miami. In yes, just under is. 100 games for him, 55 points, 17 goals, 38 assists for that defenseman. I mean, geez, if you're looking to replace two defenders that um, – you know, had, I would say, average stats, you know, nice, solid stats for Miami. You bring in a good junior defenseman that's got a- another year on his docket and a, and a very good defender. Nick, uh, what do you like about him? Well, first of all, you know, St. let's look at
1: what St. Cloud did with Seamus Donahue um, as, a, as a transfer pickup, and uh, we're really going to get one more year of Seamus Donahue in the back end than good with Nick perbix and that, to me, was a very, very solid pairing. Uh, when you're bringing a guy that can, you know, be that two-way player, especially the way that the game has evolved and, you know, where more and more is expected of a defenseman to not only contribute offensively, but, you know, make sure you're also hunkering down and taking care of your back end, uh, that can be really, really big, because I think if there's one big thing Miami really struggled with at times is getting the puck of their own end. And when you have a guy that has offensive stats, that tells me that either he a can skate the puck, he can make that good first pass. uh, It's just confident when poised with the puck. And I think, you know, Miami, they need that guy. Just kind of like when Nick Purvix is the St. Cloud, a guy that really can settle down or control the game, especially if you're scrambling in your own end. And I think if there's one thing Miami really, really to struggle with at times is getting just pinned down on their own end. Um, And, you know, you talk about some of those offensive guys, you know, The culmination of all these names, Noah, this is a very important year for Chris Bergeron and his staff, you know, you're really the report card comes out for any collegiate staff at year three, because it really does show you, you know, where your recruiting is at. It shows you, you know where the direction of the team is going. So, you know, Miami finishing last in the conference last year, we have picked them like he's mentioned seventh, but you know, if things turn the right way and, you know, I, there's still some question marks there with Western Michigan, who uh, I think was one of the more dangerous teams, you know, coming into the NCC playoffs, uh, Nebraska, Omaha still looks pretty solid. You know, that bottom half of the NCHC, I don't know if it's as set in stone as it has been in years past, and there's no question with Miami and these you know new players coming in and some really good transfers. You mentioned the transfer portal has worked well for a lot of the teams in the NCHC over the past couple of years. Uh, this is a turning point year for the squad, and I think they really need to make some type of advancement, especially in the standings. And I would think if you can't measure success um, – you know, really just by that. But I think you do have to show to the leadership group that, you know, if you can at least get to maybe fifth or fourth place in the conference, I think that's a win. It's not going to be an easy route. As you know, this conference is very, very much the gauntlet of the, of the college hockey world. Uh, but I think they've got a really good mix there, especially with the types of players you mentioned. And that defenseman that you mentioned is going to be a really big key for Miami trying to get more offense and also keeping some of those goals off the board.
0: Yeah, if you're a St. Cloud State hockey fan and a Miami fan, get used to hearing Will Cullen's name uh, in a Red Hawk sweater because he's a good hockey player. The other player they bring in uh, that has a little bit of pedigree, if you will, forward Chase Chase Gressick, a junior from Merrimack, 54 points and 78 games played for him. Uh, Much needed help on the front end, I think, to maybe replace the absence of Casey Gilling uh, and some of those forwards that they lost here. When you go back to – you know, that freshman class as well. I, I think it's interesting you talk about kind of the report card and the identity of what this Red Hawks team and specifically the identity under, you know, a coaching staff that each are in their third season together, right? Primo Self, uh, Frankie, I'm not even going to attempt that last name again, and Red Savage. Uh, here's this for you, Nick. Uh, looking at them, 5'9, uh, 170, 5'10, 170. 5'11, 174. And then you look at their single defenseman and Nick Nato, they bring in six foot, 190. So, what does that tell you uh, about the identity of this group coming in? Speed, 100% speed and
1: skill. Now, That doesn't mean that, you know, a guy like that can't throw his weight around. But, you know, let's just look at St. Cloud and let's just review that team in a little bit. Um, You know, incredible shot, great in open nights. But the one part of his game that has to improve is some of those battle areas, especially in the corners along the wall. That's an area he struggled with. And he's not a big kid at all. He's what, 5'9", 5'10", say I think maybe 160, 165. Uh, Knows what to do with the puck when he's got time and space. But, you know, when it gets to some of those big games, I thought he really did struggle in the championship game along those board battles and those stick battles it just comes to a a battle of will but you can see with Bergeron I know he's been evolving that team to have more speed and still play with an edge it almost reminds me of Omaha a little bit in terms of how they want to approach the game Uh, but you know maybe a little skill in there too you know might prop them over the top a little bit but
0: absolutely this roster just screams I want to be fast
1: I want to be quick and I want to be shifty more than anything
0: Yeah, I definitely agree. I'm actually trying to pull up if I can find it here. Sometimes they have the historical information. Uh, The guy I'm looking at right now um, for historical information on the St. Cloud State website, uh, he actually only gained two pounds here, according to the website. I was looking at Yami Cranula, because there's a guy that kind of was a really good example of me, um, of a guy that, you know, played with, you know, that heart and that energy and kind of that buzzsaw mentality, but maybe, you know, didn't, you know, win all of those board battles. And then I thought coming into his sophomore year really made that jump. So I'm thinking the same thing where, you know, you have guys who have a lot of skill, you have a lot of speed. They might be, I don't want to say underweight, but you know, they're maybe just not adjusted to the size of the college game yet. So they're going to rely a little bit more on that speed and skill. And then Chris Bergeron and his coaching staff is going to get them in the weight room, continue to develop them, continue to see if these guys fill out. You look at, uh, uh, some of these guys that are coming in as freshmen as well, especially Red Savage, they're only 18, 19 years old. That's the other thing you have to remember too is, you know, I didn't fill out until I was 22, 23. And now I'm filling out too much, unfortunately. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, too many valves cheeseburgers. We got to get, gotta get Caleb to stop calling in the orders. Uh, they, yeah. they, um, Chris Bergeron actually mentioned, he said that they were bringing two goaltenders in. We only have one listed. Uh, I wonder if prospect Henrik Larson might be the other one that might uh, make the jump as well. But uh, we have no information to confirm on that. So as we move into the schedule, Nick, uh, Ferris State, Uh, is on the docket. Robert Morris was listed on the docket, but I don't know Uh, what's going to replace that there um michigan state bowling green and then you kind of start in november to start to see the crux of that NCHC schedule omaha north dakota denver um, long island university is actually on the docket for the red hawks november 26 and 27 which i think is really cool uh nick have you gotten and then of course it's NCHC the rest of the way um have you gotten a chance to see any long island university games i mean i know it's kind of kind of tough for us Uh, are you excited for them in their second season on a little quick side tangent here I've seen some highlights, but not a ton,
1: Um, but you know, their head coach, I think it's a Brett Riley. I believe is their head coach Uh, that Riley family has got hockey coaching uh, throughout three or four generations. So they're in really good hands out there in Long Island. Um, And not only one, the color scheme and that logo is just, that's just balling, dude. I love, I love Long Island's Jersey. Honestly, I think it's awesome. Um, But I think it's exciting too. You know, at Long Island, they, to start off a year, it is exciting when we when we were first breaking the news that this was a new team entering the college hockey world, right? And it's sad because now we're talking about potentially Robert Morris uh, leaving. I know officially right now that uh, program, both men's and women's, is done. There are efforts right now uh, by alumni and a few others that are trying to uh, save those programs. But as of right now, as you mentioned, no of the the programs or have since been uh, dismantled per se. Uh, but Long Island, that was their next step, right? When you get into the league, you're probably you know just trying to get your feet wet now it's you know let's see where we're at and the exhibition schedule or now i'm assuming this is more of a thanksgiving holiday tournament type thing uh where they come in and, and try to actually go out and you know get to another opponent especially in a, a very good conference like the nchc it's, it's exciting for college hockey. this is the type of matchups you look for um remember when arizona state came in and I think there was a lot of, uh, I want to say maybe muffled giggling when they came into the league, and not just because you know the play because their players are good. Let's well, not get me wrong, but you know against a very non-traditional hockey market that you know we weren't really sure what was going to. They actually a pretty darn good competitive program down there, and they're actually attracting a lot of high-end recruits, especially from that U.S. Uh, under-18 national development team. So um, at the end of the day, that's great for the sport. um, For Brett Landy's staff, again, I don't know much about Long Island. I haven't seen a ton of them play. Uh, uh, but, you know, why not, right? It's hockey. You know, you learn every time that you play a game competitively against somebody else, it's a chance for growth. And uh, it's not only for that, but for Long Island especially, it's going to kind of put them up to where they need to go in that program, being that
0: they're only be in their second year of existence. Yeah, I think that weekend is much watch hockey because you kind of get to see their comparison to the NCHC, if you will, and see how they can handle that, that test. Uh, and exciting for Miami to kind of uh, have a game on the docket that I think a lot of people are, are going to be watching. Uh, their goal is to get <clears> – <throat> I should say their goal is to get full capacity uh, for their games, hopefully as well too. Nick. I've got three impact players coming up in this next season that I think are going to be pivotal for Miami. I think you're going to take my first one, no doubt about it, but who are, who are a couple of guys that maybe you're looking for on that roster that you feel uh, might be some guys that uh, could make a difference. I'm going to imagine one of them is going to be a goaltender. One of them will be, but I actually
1: like Derek Dashkey. Um, I I think he was a guy that when he was on, he was a very, very good player. Um, And I think for him, you know, 12 points out, four goals, eight assists, but to me, uh, the biggest part of his game, uh, you know, we talk about plus and minuses. Noah, I'm really not a huge fan of the plus and minus because it really doesn't tell you the full story. He was a minus 17, so possibly, you know, that it's it's possibly the line and everything else in the matchups, but uh, he was a very, very good offensive threat for Miami when he was on the ice. Unfortunately, just couldn't quite get that consistency throughout the season, but I think he's going to be important for them in this season take that next step and to really try to put that finish touch on some of his offensive opportunities and to me uh, he's a guy that uh, has got skill he's got speed he's also got a little bit of size too to him
0: as well so i think he's going to be a very important piece for the miami redhawks next season yeah i like that addition i you know you, you look at the guys that top the list uh matt barry is a, is a guy for me that i think is you know 17 points in his campaign as well as uh matthew barbellini uh, you know two guys that uh, had really good campaigns. I think Matt Berry is going to be a senior this year and then a sophomore for Barbellini. I think, you know, if you're sitting uh, third on the team in points uh, for Barbellini and entering only your sophomore year, that's a really good growth period uh, for the Miami RedHawks, knowing that you're going to get a guy for a couple more years that really is going to be that impact player. And maybe the guy that kind of, uh, if you will, bridges that gap between the new incoming freshmen and, you know, guys that are going to make that growth. But of course, the real sophomore, the real sophomore, the <laughs> sophomore that I think, I think we're all intrigued by and a guy that uh, anybody uh, in the NCAA would like to have after his performance last year, that's Ludwig Pearson, 18 games played a two, six, seven and goals against and a 9.25 save five, say percentage, uh, despite going five, 10 and two overall uh, Nick, uh, is this a goaltender that uh, has the potential to uh, be in the Richter award conversation in a couple of years here? I think it's possible, depending on the season, he could be in that
1: conversation next year. He darn near stingle. And stole a lot of games from the Miami Red Bulls, including I think a couple against St. Cloud. He is that good. I mean, just look at your stats, it was, he's a five ten, and yet he's got a save percentage um, over nine two five, and a goals against just sitting about two and a half uh, your goaltenders giving you a chance to win. And if you look at, again, the skaters and the rosters, just not a lot of support for him. And unfortunately for Ludwig, it just came down to where I think he just saw too much rubber and there was too many grade eight chances that he, you know, unfortunately he can't, you know, morph into carry price. You, uh, as you know, uh, we see now he can perform, uh, you know, in between the pipes or the Montreal Canadiens, but uh, he's a heck of a goaltender. He's one of the better goaltending prospects I've seen in my time covering the NCHC. He's a big dude. He's solid. He's square to the puck. He doesn't overplay anything. Uh, He's just a very, very smart goaltender, reads the play well. And he make you know, the big thing about him is his rebound control. He rarely ever gives you second, third chance opportunities. And for Miami, that's a really good foundation to build out in front of them. And uh, like you mentioned with Chris on that 20 core group, they're going to really have to step up to the plate this year and help out that goaltender. And if they do, this could be kind of that sleeper, Team that could not only maybe maybe just push for the top four, but maybe sneak into that top three spot, depending
0: on if all those pieces click together for the Red Hawks. I, t- I totally agree with that a hundred percent. I mean, this is a group that, you know, with a lot of roster return sometimes you just don't know what you're going to get, but sometimes you kind of catch lightning in a bottle, if you will. I, uh, when you look at Pearson, I, uh, him and I would say Isaiah Thomas, uh, Isaiah Thomas, Isaiah Saville from, uh, from <laughs> Omaha, were the two goaltenders that I had, especially in the pod and even moving throughout that, that were two guys that really uh, stood on their heads and really kind of helped their respective teams on that front. But similar to when we talked about Colorado college, last week, it's all about supporting that goaltending, right? Give your goaltender a chance to do his job in a way that uh, gets you over the hump to winning hockey games. I think, you know, you look at, you know, CC last year, uh, four games or four wins for them on the docket, Miami with five wins last year as well. You're trying to push to that, you know, 10 win mark. You're trying to get to that point there. Uh, Nick, in in your opinion, uh, as we have about six minutes or so left here in our coverage for the Miami Red Hawks, um, what is... The key for this team to kind of get out of the cellar, if you will, in the NCHC standings and kind of make a run and make a push, especially with a group that has a lot of new faces in that locker room. Well, again, you know, what's similar with St.
1: Cloud last year, again, you know, it's hard to really pin down last year during a pandemic versus this year, but just from a strict hockey sense you're going to have to have a team with a lot of new faces gel early. I think chemistry is so important. Uh, again, shame us down to you when you slotted into Nick Purvick's, um, you know, on paper that seemed like a good matchup. And then when it finally got into practice, that's a very, very good uh, pairing there for Miami. They need more offensive pressure. They need more puck possession to me. Um, I thought at times I had a really, really good one, but it was more of that bang and, you know, hitting type four check and not a lot of offensive chances were generated from that. So maybe a little bit more of that cycle game and, certainly no question about it. Need more pucks on that. And sometimes, no, we talk about this hockey is a funny game. Sometimes, sometimes it just, you got to throw the puck on that, especially in the college game it's more likely than not that a goofy bounce or maybe a mishandle by a goaltender, maybe a catch somebody that's cheating towards uh, the cross crease, maybe instead of going short side, um, they just need to generate more offense. That's really key for them. Um, Cause they, if they can stay away from Pearson having to make 35 to 45 plus saves a night, they have a solid goaltender. If you can lighten up his workload, put some more work on the opposing goaltender, this squad could be in really good shape. But again,
0: a lot of us have to gel with that roster early on in the season. I think it's interesting when you look at the mold of Miami, right? You compare them to Colorado college, Western Michigan, uh, you know, Denver kind of had an interesting year last year, but maybe Omaha throw them in the mix as well. Those other teams that we mentioned, uh, you know, not including Miami, they play kind of more of that heavy physical kind of blue collar, hard, no style. I think Miami's mold in their makeup, especially when you look at their incoming class, it's different. They're a group that wants to play with a lot of speed. They want to play with a lot of transitional flow, if you will. Um, and I and I think that that's where they're going to kind of make their money is not necessarily you know being a team that's going to wear you down like Western Michigan where they're going to put you in the fifth row every night, um, but I think they're a group that, <laughs> I think they're a group that you need to find a way to. Uh, Essentially, slow down the play in your own end and create those turnovers early, and then work with that transitional speed. I think the biggest challenge when you're a team that is minus 41 in the goal differential category is that you're just not getting out of your own end. But if you can teach, especially these young, speedy forwards, to find a way to chip box off walls, float a puck through the middle to their centerman coming through with speed, I think that's where Miami's next step to success is going to be. Is if they can spend less time in their defensive zone, duh, that helps for hockey, but at the same time transitioning with speed and using their attack with numbers because um, in contrast to our St. Jose state Huskies where they use their speed uh, primarily to create a cycle uh, establishment in the zone. I think Miami, similar to what you mentioned about them being opportunistic and kind of uh, bang, bang, if you will. Um, I think they're going to be a group that uh, scores a lot on the rush, right? Creates a lot with, uh, you know, isolation plays three on twos, or you have guys uh, that are coming in with different, um, levels of depth entering the zone and then creating crossing patterns shot through screens, shots across the grain, those sorts of things, uh, you know, kind of redirects shot passes in front of that. I think that's going to be Miami's game, especially when you have defensemen uh, that are looking for those speedy forwards in front of the net, if they do get set up as well too. So I think you're, you're going to see a group that really is going to uh, favor that speed game. Um, and it should be interesting. Nick, My last question for you is this, if you're the St. Cloud State Huskies, how do you grab uh, a couple of wins against this Miami RedHawks team looking forward? And if you're Miami, how do you get over the hump against some of these Minnesota Duluth St. Cloud States and North Dakotas?
1: Well, let's first start, you know, against St. Cloud, you know, for Miami to get into St. Cloud, mind you, it's not a tough task. St. Cloud's a very good structured hockey team, but how you do it is you get on them physically against St. Cloud is a team that is built for speed. And like you mentioned, the cycle game. And if you can, make them defend one and to make every time that they touch the puck in the offensive zone, a living, you know, what H-E double hockey sticks, pardon the pun. Um, That's part of it. I think we saw that with UMass in the championship game, there was a lot of the physical uh, punishment that St. Cloud state took and it wore them down over the course of that hockey game. And for Miami, they have, like you mentioned, they have a, they're molding, but they still have kind of that, almost dangerous mix of both grit and as well as skill possibly coming in It's just a question of how well that dance coordination can be between those two types of hockey that you play. And for St. Cloud State to keep it on the outside, you just got to trust what you know you do well. Again, quick exits out of the zone. That transition game, that St. Cloud does so well. Getting the puck in deep and establishing that cycle and keeping that puck position and then turning those into grade-A scoring chances. That's what St. Cloud State does well. That's what they'll have to continue to do. That's their identity to continue to win against uh, Miami. And then the second part of your question, how does Miami get over the hump and possibly snag a win against Omaha, Denver, Western Michigan, Duluth? Um, again, I think that transition game, as you mentioned, is going to be key. They have to spend less time defending. They have to come up the ice with numbers, and I think, honestly, you talk about the rush, but a lot of these teams also make you force, they force you to dump the puck in from the red line. They're so good at back-checking, especially teams like UMD, North Dakota. So you're not going to have a lot of that on-the-rush you know, type opportunities. so it's going to be, as you mentioned, still coming through the middle of speed but knowing and it, play it's called placing pucks right it's about putting that puck into the zone in the spot where you your guy can have a shot to get on it first and then it's that second and third man support getting in whether it's physically coming in and maybe just doing a tap back play and then finally getting possession of the offensive zone that's how they're gonna have to do
0: it right. i like that for me uh, if you're Miami, uh, it might sound extremely simple, but especially with the speedy forwards that you have just alleviate pressure pucks off the glass, uh, high floats out of the zone. You know, like you mentioned, placing pucks a little bit, it doesn't have to be fancy. And again, if you, if the transitional game maybe isn't there where you're snapping tape to tape that night or, you know, hitting pucks, off, you know, good bank passes off the wall, just alleviate pressure and kind of start the process over again. And on the flip side, I think if you're a team like St. Cloud, uh, similar to the success that they've had against Miami um, and we've talked about this a lot in Huskies hockey. It's all about putting your foot, you know, on the gas pedal and kind of putting your foot on the throat of the opposing team. If you will, I think when you give Miami a little bit of life, that's when they start to kind of wake up and, you know, be up on the bench. If you will, if you're St. Cloud, you have to be the aggressor from the puck drop, right? Your, your starts. <laughs> have we ever talked about starts for the Hus- Hus- Huskies team before Nick? I can't recall. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, never. Right. Um, but your starts are imperative, uh, against a team like this, because you don't want to give them any life, especially with a team that, um, I know they have a lot of transfers coming in but might be a little bit younger uh, you know, kind of, especially emotionally, um, does that play a factor? I don't know. But if you're saying, let's say, don't let it play a factor at all, be the aggressor, be the dominant team and kind of put your foot on the gas pedal from the puck drop. I think that's important against not only the Miami Redhawks but any team in the NCHC, but that will do it, Nick. It will be exciting to see the Red Hawks. Like you mentioned, I think they're a team that is kind of a dark horse candidate kind of reminded me a little bit of a mini Western Michigan coming into the year. If you will, uh, it should be, it should be an interesting one. You agree with me. That's a lie. Um, only those who know, know. <laughs> I don't know what you're smoking, but I want a little bit of it. Anyway, <laughs> so <we're, do> I. <laughs> we are going to move on to our extra ice session. We're going to talk about the Minnesota Wild one more time. They've earned it uh, getting to game seven and sticking with the Vegas Golden Knights through the first half of that hockey game until unfortunately the wheels fell off the bus and went down uh, uh, I-94 on that one. So without further ado, our extra ice session and the Minnesota Wild. welcome into our extra ice session nick the minnesota wild uh a week ago we had them as our topic of discussion on the extra ice session and the conversation was much different it was how the heck did they win another hot game against the vegas golden knights let alone get to game seven well they almost uh caleb peabody'd you and uh (laughs) and uh, proved you wrong here. Unfortunately, you were right. The Minnesota wild did not make it to the second round, but they did. So uh, in more ceremonious fashion than in years past, if you will, uh, clawing their way back and showing a little bit of resiliency, unfortunately falling six to two uh, in that final game seven, although it was two to two with about 10 minutes remaining before Vegas kind of had that quick strike opportunity to make it four to two. Um, First of all, what were your overall impressions of the Minnesota wild and their 2021 regular season, and then moving into the playoffs?
1: I think first impressions is this team is fun to watch. What the hell is that? Um, um, this is not the, you know, team that you're kind of going back to do I watch tennis or do I watch hockey? I'm not sure. Um, no disrespect to tennis. Cause I play tennis. That's a great sport, but if you want high tempo, high energy, some skill on display this team was different than it has been in years past. Gee, I wonder why that was. Kirill Kaprizov. Um, every time he touched the puck, and you know, it, it's funny when you you talk about guys like Sidney Crosby, Connor McDavid, uh, guys who every time that they have possession of the puck, you're almost anticipating you're going to see something you haven't seen before. Um, you, you know that they control the entire game with the puck on their stick. Uh, Kaprizov very early on showed me that he is a guy that's capable of doing that. He should be the absolute runaway for the Calder Trophy. Um, And I think what impressed me the most about his game, holy hell, was he strong in the puck. I mean, yeah, he can skate. Yes, he can shoot. But my goodness, if he had possession, it was very difficult to knock him off the puck. He was very, very impressive. And I think even defensively, he played very well. But beyond that, I think it's the overall makeup of the squad. This squad ended up being especially with that fourth line, Bonino Sturm uh, and I think Parisi there at the very end and when he got some time in, uh, this team was surprisingly balanced and surprisingly, I think, played roles that were suited for a third and fourth line. That's something we haven't seen in a while. I um, mean, I really like some of the additions at the Wild Run and like Bukestad played well. Um, I think Johansson, when he was healthy, I think played pretty good. I th- you know, He had some injury bugs this season um, and at the end of that I I think Victor Rask, you know, for a guy that spent a lot of the time, well, majority of the time uh, as a healthy scratch last season showed that he's still a capable NHL player. Now, is he, you know, probably your first or second line center moving forward? I don't believe that is the case. I think he's better suited to a, a third or a fourth line center role, uh, but it, you know, he's, you can prove that He's still, a, he's still a decent hockey player. Um, but I think what it also showed this regular season, that there's still some growth that has to be done. There's still some changes that need to be made. There's going to be one that's out of their control with the Seattle expansion draft. here coming coming uh, in the next, was it 34, 45 days? It's coming up pretty quick. Um, And then in the playoffs, again, down 3-1. This team was resilient. Um, There's no question that last Sunday when we talked to Noah, it wasn't the fact they were down 3-1 in my opinion. It was how they were down 3-1. Vegas was controlling that series I feel like the game plan for Minnesota wasn't, you know, really generating much success, especially Game Two, Game Three, and then especially in Game Four. Um, So I had my doubts. Now, mind you, I did pick Minnesota, I believe, in our brackets to upset Vegas in seven. yeah. So at the end of it, you know, kind of proving right, proving wrong, but it was just the way that Vegas showed that they could really lock down. And if they really wanted to impose their will, they could. And game seven was a testament to that. It did not help, unfortunately, that Jonas for goes out in the first 90 seconds. It does not help that, <clears throat> excuse me, that uh, Erickson also was banged up. Um, I think Ryan Suter was. Especially when you take your your face to the freaking crossbar, that's not gonna feel very good. Yeah. and you kind of wonder how healthy this team really was. And I just think at the end of that they ran out of gas.
0: Yeah. So um it's funny you mentioned the brackets. I was looking. I have Pittsburgh, Washington, St. Louis, Minnesota, Toronto, Edmonton, Carolina, Florida. Yikes. Um anyway. Oh boy. <laughs> <clears throat> anyway, I have Toronto beating Florida in the Stanley Cup final. Jeez, Louise. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned um you know, Minnesota wild, uh, that kind of going the distance, um, game two, you mentioned, um, I actually even disagree with you on this one. I actually thought Vegas stole that game. That was the game. I thought that Minnesota was all over them and Mark, they won that game three to one. And Mark Andre Fleury was like, remember that? Cause that was the game where the, the puck came off. can hand <laughs> and off the end wall. And Minnesota was yeah. the better team on that one. So here's what I had. I thought Minnesota was actually the better team in game one after their first period. I thought they were the better team. Game two, I thought Vegas stole that hockey game. Game three, Vegas was the better team after the first period by a mile. Um, Game four, Vegas was just dominant. There's no way around that. Game five, Minnesota definitely stole that hockey game. 14 shots on goal, winning a game four to two. We'll take that one all day. Game six, Minnesota was the dominant team, especially in the third period. Of course, we all know how game seven was. But this series, it's interesting because uh, I totally agree with you. When we we look at this after game four, we said this series feels a little bit lopsided because Vegas started to kind of build that momentum. Minnesota was on their heels a little bit. They, you know, kind of got, you know, gypped a little bit or, or ran into the the bad luck of reviews um, and things that kind of, you know, maybe turn, turned the tide a little bit uh, and just weren't able to generate a whole lot of momentum at that particular point, but they really created their own. And I think uh, you talk about teams that come back from three to one, granted whether or not they win game seven, the biggest game that matters, and it again, it's going to sound obvious when I say this, that game five is so pivotal because if you're a team that has a 3-1 series stranglehold and is looking to shut the door, that game five is so important because if you don't win that game, that's where the momentum train starts to swing to the other side. And that's where there's the belief that, oh, we can do this. That game five is so crucial for teams down three to one, not only obviously to stay alive, but just because if you get that game five, especially the way Minnesota did, where they stole it against a Vegas team that put a million shots on net and arguably should have won that game seven to nothing that puts a little bit of seed of doubt into the vegas golden knights players um unfortunately we know how it it didn't end up i know a lot of people that um they were disgruntled with uh the fact that minnesota i don't want to say didn't show up in game seven but didn't get the (coughs) results oh here we are with minnesota sports once again let me put it to you this way the vegas golden knights and i normally when teams beat our team i'm cheering for them i'm not cheering for vegas i actually thought there was a ton of clutch and grab and a lot of things that went on behind the play that, you know, Vegas is a good hockey team credit to them. It, like as a hockey player, my thought was this Vegas had to bring or brought back their leading score for game seven. Minnesota was down a defenseman and a half, if you will, Minnesota, probably could have earned about 10 minutes of power play time in game seven. And I got about two total minutes out of that entire thing. And they still took one of the best teams, I believe the second best team in terms of points in the National Hockey League to game seven and hung with them through half of that game uh, with Joel Erickson Ek halfway in and out of the lineup in that game as well. Like that's such a testament to this group. And we talk so much about, oh, here we are, the Minnesota Wild, another first round exit, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. This first round exit did not look the same as first no. round exits of years past. And I no. want to make that abundantly clear. I remember a couple of years ago, they were playing Winnipeg. Sorry, I'm not yelling at you. I love you, Nick. You're, tr- uh, you're triggered, aren't you? <laughs> a little bit. It actually ticks me off. Do you remember the series a couple of years ago against Winnipeg? Minnesota gets bounced in five, their fifth game, they lose five, nothing. They don't even show up. You know, they they were on their heels that entire series. They couldn't get any. Anything done this group had pushback they had fight they had the ability to take a game um survive some of the moments that maybe other wild teams in years past won't be able to get through and be able to be the aggressor for i would say a good portion of this series something that we have not seen since i would say since the wild their ticket to the second round against colorado all those years ago um and it's and it's important for people to recognize that yes was it a first round exit but it did not look the same as the wild of years past. I want to build on that just because number one, I, it's funny. We're agreeing with
1: each other a lot today. That's <laughs> weird. Um, but you're talking Vegas who I think is a true Stanley cup contender with the depth that they have in that roster. Um, and again, the way that they physically impose themselves now, absolutely. We can have the conversation of the rest, put the whistles away, what they should have earned in playoff hockey. We know that the, the calls tend to change. Um, You hate to say it, but it is true. Um, They fought through that. Uh, Mm -hmm. Like you said, this is not, you can't look at it as just another first-round exit, you just can't. You took a a cup-contending team who, mind you, this is a team that went out and got Alex Petrangelo. This is a team that has Mark Stone. This was the Jennings Trophy-winning squad. This was a team that had the best goals against average of any team in the National Hockey League. You had a Vezina-like goaltender in Mark Rondre Fleury who's been in that. He seems to be rediscovering his form, uh, especially there. I mean, Robin Lehner was the starting goaltender this season when they came in. He stole that yeah. back when Mark he went o- down to andre
0: Fleury was the subject of trade talks, and Vegas couldn't find a way to offload him.
1: And and, look and think about where they might be if Fleury didn't, wasn't in this series. Mm-hmm. Um, Minnesota did not go away in the series. They did not, yeah, despite all the stuff behind the plays. You mentioned some of those extracurriculars, some of those physical impairments, again, playoff hockey. And even, you know, I, I remember when Karel Kaprizov was interviewed after game five, um, or was it either after game six? I forget which one. And they were asking him about how he was taking those cross checks and punishments. You know what his response was? That's just hockey. Yeah. You know, it, that's
0: just what it is. And, 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 and he was a guy, pardon me for interrupting. If you watched every time he was on the ice, there was no player on the wild team that the Vegas school, the Knights finished checks more or finished late shots on more than him. And I don't say that to be like, make an excuse, but when you have a rookie player that a team is trying to get off his game or make him feel uncomfortable, you kind of hang around for the extra half a second, maybe give him a jab to the ribs, a jab to the kidneys. That kid fought through a gaunt- I shouldn't say a kid. He's, he's almost already my age, um, but he fought through a gauntlet. And I think people have to realize that it's like, he really did make for having two points in the series, you know, or three points in the series, he he fought through a quite a darn bit.
1: Yeah. And and let's and let's take it from the if you're scouting the Minnesota Wild right, you know that the majority of their offense this season was through that Caprice zuccarello pair. So it makes sense that they were going to give them whatever they can get away with. Right. I mean, let's be honest. It's the same. The couple playoffs, you get away with what you can. Right. Um, Cause again, the referees are not calling the game the same. Um, on the second thing that I think we learned was for a contract that was three years, 3.25 million, I believe. How good of a contract does Cam Talbot's look for this season? Oh, yeah. he, oh my goodness. And if there's anybody out there and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to save you from your triggered response here. If anybody wants to put any blame on Cam Talbot, yeah, no goaltender is ever perfect. I get that, but he was remarkable again this series. Again, you know when you talk about guys, ready to come in in Game Seven again mark stone william carlson jonathan Marcus, so uh from the blue lane shea theodore my goodness is he freaking good um and you've got guys like alex bertrangelo this vegas golden knight team is loaded from top to bottom that is there's really no break um when they come they come at you in every single way ken talbot really did rise to the occasion and i think he really did give a uh, this team a chance to win every single night and you know again we if you want to go back to game seven, you know, that go ahead goal there by patch that made it three, two, that was tough because of how quickly it was after Kaprizov tied it at two. And then it was Nick Hag again, that made that, that two goal lead. And again, you, you say that's the most dangerous lead in hockey, but it is the most dangerous lead in hockey in a game seven for the team that's trailing, especially when you're going to the third period. That's a tough mm-hmm. one to come from. And yeah, I think at the end of it, I said it before, I think uh, with the injuries that were there with Minnesota, with the physical pain that, in She's said, what they took all series I think they just ran out of gas and uh, Vegas you hate to give them credit but they were the team that I think was better overall in this series um, they're going to have their hands full against yes, a are. very tough Colorado series and this is when you talk about must watch hockey holy buckets I mean you know the Stanley Cup winner could come out of this series uh, that Vegas is going to go into here against the Avalanche.
0: Yeah, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I actually hope the, hope the Avs win. I don't know. I feel like it's Colorado's time. I feel like it's their time to kind of get back into form, if you will. Um, and, you know, <clears throat> maybe that's me being a little bitter. I don't know. Um, you they know, have.
1: <laughs> I'm going to interrupt you for one second. The one thing about Colorado that is is to me a little bit concerning is, say what you thought about Nazem Kadri and his history in playoff games, meaning how many times he's missed or been suspended. <laughs> right. But he was a huge part, I believe, that second or third line center. That team is now a little bit more top-heavy than they have been without Nazem Kadri in the lineup. If there's one thing that Vegas has shown is they if they can shut down Kaprizov, Zuccarello, I would imagine that Mark Stone and that line will be out against McKinnon, Landeskog, and Rantanen. Question is for Colorado, does their depth rise to the occasion and take the pressure off and force Vegas to redo their matchups in that series? If Colorado does that, it's their series to lose. And for Vegas, they can turn the tides if they can find a way to shut down, um, again, that top pairing. It's going to be tough, again, with Colorado having last change at home, the first two uh, hockey contests. But, again, I think Vegas has shown with Ryan Reeves and some of those agitators, if they can continue that form, they may give Colorado fits. And, you know, it's going to be a tough test either way. It's going to be quite the battle in the second round.
0: You know who didn't impress me for the Vegas Golden Knights and I was kind of surprised by it? Alex Petrangelo. He he had three points in the series. He was a guy to me that I and maybe I'm wrong, um, which I usually am. He was a guy to me that looked like and I know I I can't remember. Did he have some injury uh, bug in the middle of the season as well? He but any, anyway, yep. I I thought that he looked like he was fighting his legs and fighting the puck a little bit. I mean, I know he kicked that helmet in game seven, you know, kind of trying to stir up the boys. He was a guy that I looked at him and I like, he did not seem like a factor to me. He seemed turnover prone. He seemed like a guy that if I'm the Vegas Golden Knights, I look at him right now and kind of say, Hmm, this is interesting. Um, And I, and I thought that especially Joel Erickson, who had a phenomenal season and a phenomenal really series i tell you what that kid i uh, if he continues to play the same way he's going to command some pretty pretty decent money for himself uh upcoming here as his contract expires you know but uh, i just i just looked at petrangelo and i said you know what I, I didn't feel like he was the factor that warranted speaking of contracts that warranted what what he was at i know he had like 20 points and 40 some games or something like that i mean statistically he's looking all right but he was a guy that i looked at him and said I you know, I feel like if I was a four-checker, I feel like I could put him under duress and he didn't remind me of the Alex Petrangelo of a couple years ago with the blues. Right. And, you know, we talk
1: about this, Noah, a lot. And I think it's often missed is, you know, when you get to the playoffs, especially how banged up, how healthy are guys really that are playing? And I think that's a fair question with Alex Petrangelo, because, you know, when he's healthy, he's a much better skater, he's a much better decision maker. um, And I think he just controls the game a lot better. And I just feel like something is still nagging him um, that, you know, kind of slowed him down a bit. Uh, But you also have to credit, the Minnesota forwards, especially in the defensive zone, they weren't really giving anybody of those defensemen anything. Shea Theodore, who to me is one of the best offensive defensemen in the entire league. He had not a single point in the series until game seven. and he's a guy that can absolutely with some of the moves. I mean, it's almost like a Brent Burns, right? It's like a forward turn defenseman sometimes. So with the way that he shifted with the puck, um, but I just kind of think that Minnesota just didn't give Vegas that blue line that much room for their guys to walk to find lanes. And you have to give a lot of credit to that coaching staff, again with Dean Evason. Um, I want to get your I actually want to get your take. though. No, I'm going to ask you a question for the first time this uh, this afternoon. Perfect. Where does this organization mm-hmm. and Zach Parisi sit? Um, I think that is probably the biggest question now in this offseason, season, not only because of the way that it went into the playoffs and how he was not playing, but then when he got his chances, he made the most of it. He still showed that he can contribute on this hockey squad. So where is it at with these two and does either Parisi or the wild Does there, is there a mutual parting of the ways or is there maybe some rekindling that has to be done uh, with it? And his, does his contract make it difficult for him to possibly be moved?
0: Right. It's interesting. I think that the the ability for Zach Parisi, where Zach Parisi ends up, is going to depend on Zach. I, I think it's whatever he wants to do. I think our pal Derek Felska uh, said very eloquently, um, or not so eloquently, I don't know, uh, <laughs> that... Uh, uh, essentially Zach has the potential to really put this organization in a very interesting spot or has the potential to move on and do what he feels is best. If Minnesota looks like they might want to move on with them. I think that discussion is going to start with Bill Guerin. Uh, the bigger question is if you're Zach Parisi um, and Bill Guerin, are you able to offload that contract? Should Zach want out? I think that's the biggest challenge. I think if Zach makes, Oh, I don't know, $2 million less, two and a half million dollars less, I think that the discussion becomes absolutely that Zach Parisi moves on to maybe a cup contender or somebody different like that. Um, But I think one, it's going to depend on Zach. And two, it's going to depend if you can find a team that, uh, you know, the fit makes sense for. Um, Personally, I think if I was just going with my gut, I have a feeling that Bill Guerin has something up his sleeve. And I think that Zach Parisi might, might be on the way, especially if Minnesota wants to get into the conversation of finding a first line center or a trade partner or something like that, or something in the draft. um, I'm leaning, I'm about probably 65 35 that Zach Reasy has played his last game in a Minnesota wild sweater. And I wanted to ask you the same question, Nick, but I also want to ask you this Minnesota, when you're looking at cast base and especially when you're talking about, for example, the Jack Eichel situation or potentially bringing in another player here. You've got Nick Bonino, Nick Bukestad, Ryan Johansson, Ian Cole on that NHL squad that are guys that are um, UFA's coming up this year. Also, I'd say Kyle Rowan, Brad Hunt are in that mix. I think Rowan Hunt both make their return. I'd like to see Brad Hunt come again. I don't know if Brad Hunt does come back, but I really like what he has to offer as that extra defenseman currently. Uh, Out of this group of four, um, as well as Zach Parise, between Bonino, Bukestad, Johansson, Ian Cole – I actually think if they can get it team-friendly, I would love to see Nick Bukestad back. I like his four-check game. I think he's a good, you know, fourth-line guy. Um, Nick Benino, I think, is a good veteran presence. You know, maybe that center depth, if you will. I'd like to see both of those two back. I don't know if we see Johansson or Ian Cole back, although Ian Cole's plus-minus was really nice. Um, if You're seeing Ian Cole back. You think? Absolutely. Yeah, which is interesting because, like, I know a lot of people. He has some liabilities to his game, but his underlying statistics um, are pretty good. But my question is this: If you bring Ian Cole back, it does Nick Manino or Nick Bucci that comes back? I think I think we're all in agreement that Marcus Johansson has played his last game in a wild sweater, unless something crazy happens. Fair. I think that's fair. Yep. Uh, well, first of all, Ian Cole. You know what is sneaky
1: good acquisition that was to offload Greg Patteron, who had been injured for almost what two-plus years mm-hmm. um, on the Wild roster. Um, to me, Ian Cole, yeah, he's a third-line guy, but for a third pairing, he's a pretty darn good third-pairing guy, and he brought some stability to that third pairing that I don't think that Wild had in, in quite some time, and I think paired with Susie, and he showed that he could play with Addison. Um, he's a guy that, you know, I, I think still has a really good chunk, and I think you can get him in a really good team-friendly deal. That's why I think you'll see him back, and I I'm, I'm pretty sure with some folks I talked to, there were some already some extension uh, talks with him even before the season ended. So I think Cole will be back. I agree with Bonino. I agree with Bukestad and that is if The team friendly deal is there. Um, I think both of them should be re-signed. I think there's some good, like I said, Bonino's a cup winner. Um, he's a guy that's a very good locker room guy to everywhere yeah. he's gone. Um, I, I love that guy. He's a good Defensive zone uh, guy, too, especially. He's very, very smart, very good defensively. I think that's a part of his game that gets often overlooked because he's had some really good offensive moments in his game, especially in the playoffs, too. Um, and then again, with Buchstad, his size is just something that you just don't come around very often. I, I know that, you know being from Blaine a local kid you, you want more out of him I think he's an established third liner at best mm-hmm. uh, but again his
0: four check game as you mentioned under Dean Evans I thought was actually pretty good in, um, in, in the in the corners Nick Bukestad can't be beat I mean that's just where he goes to work so I think it's all about you know I think if you put him with a guy like Nico Stern for example which Nico Sturm actually might end up being oof. the third line center what what a campaign he has had especially oh. being undrafted picked up out of Clarkson uh, what a great pickup for Minnesota but I think if you look at Nick Bukestad uh, I think you can get Bukestad Stad for one and a half million dollars. I, I think I that that's fair. The question mark for Nick Benino is is Nick Benino willing to kind of sit in the similar ballpark, you know, 1.6, 1.8, something like that. I don't think you go over two mil with him. He no. had he had a decent season this year. He had whatever it was, 23 or 26 points, something like that. Um and in Nick Bonino's mind, as he's getting up in age, you know, is he looking for that one or two more sets of paydays that, you know, kind of, kind of move him on to the next step, or does he love it that much in Minnesota that he's willing to be there? On top of that too, I'll, if we talk about cup contenders, right. A lot of those,
1: we say more higher and skill guys. There's no cap room there. Whereas, you know, with Minnesota, I think that there is room there. And again, and again, mention that, you know, there's going to be some RFA deals that have to be signed. Uh Carol Capri's office one. I, I tend to think, you know, and, and, and Russo actually did a really good uh, job analyzing the difference of a bridge contract versus giving him that long-term deal right away, um, especially with the salary cap insurance that everybody in the league has been facing since the pandemic. I think that's an interesting move. We're gonna have to watch. Uh Jules Erickson. And what his money's gonna command. Yep. Kevin Fiala. Kevin Fiala is another one. So you got three big names that you have to sign. Um it, it's it's gonna be big. And I think again, whether you go, whether you're in the mix for ICO, which I think the wild are in the mix, um, especially as you mentioned, could Zach Parisi be a part of that? I okay. don't think he, so. He
0: he's he's gonna I think Zach Parise is gonna be a big piece in general just because it's I think it's um where do you go, you know in sequential order for the Minnesota wild. Obviously you have uh, you have the expansion draft, which could both hurt and help Minnesota in some senses. I know a lot of people want Matt Dumba gone uh, on that one here, but my question is this, Nick, and I want to touch on Victor Rass as well. You know, I do, um, <laughs> but I want to ask first, you've got Erickson Eck, right? Like we mentioned Kevin Fiala in that mix. Um, um, Brandon Duhame is on this list as well too um, for RFAs. And that's pretty much about it. I, uh, if you're, Kevin Fiala currently making $3 million a year. How much does Kevin Fiala command in his new contract? What is the term? What is, and what is the price point?
1: Well, that's tough.
0: And if you're Kevin Fiala's agent,
1: you're going to sit pat until Kaprizov is signed. Uh, Because again, Kaprizov is the one that's going to value points. Essentially, in Garen's mind. So, if you're if you're Kevin Fiala, I think you're going to wait to see what Capri Soft gets because then you can take that value per points and then try to get max. To me, it's tough because you know Fiala was I think good in parts of this regular season. Um, I, I think you know we'll, we'll get to Victor Rask because I think this is the part that actually goes into Fiala. I think Fiala needs different
0: people around him to better he he was a force in the playoffs he like he was he just didn't have and we talked about it in our last show right Nick when you enter the zone one on four and you have hands like him that's all well and dandy till you have someone that's not making plays next to you that can give you that little bit of edge to take the pressure off of you if you will um and and I guess the other question Nick for Kirill Kaprizov do you think Kirill, um, and this is, this is not a knock on him, but for being the guy who loves being on the team, you know, he, he's Russian coming overseas. Do you think, I know his agent's going to advise him accordingly, but do you think maybe he takes a slight pay cut to, to be a Minnesota wild player and really continue his career or kind of find some sort of bridge deal with Bill Guerin? I don't think so. Um, again, cause you have to look at this in two
1: perspectives, right? He's right now, a, you know, he's essentially going to be a, a UFA, Um, at the end of the day at the end of the day so the the question is Kirill I think wants to be here Um, and I think you know just from the interviews he's done and again with my buddy Ryan Stoa being very close to him and I I have some some information from that that unfortunately I can't share Uh, but (laughs) but at the end of it I do know a couple of things Um, Kirill is a guy that's a team guy when and i think uh was alex faust um nbc uh they were mentioning that you know when garen first went over to talk to kaprizov and he said hey you know do you want us to bring over another russian player to help you transition he goes well if he helps us win yeah but if he's not i don't i don't care so that meant he's always been a team first guy i can tell you that from a lot of the conversations i've had and just from the interviews he's done you can tell that this is not a guy that puts himself out there is that this is all about me, myself, and I, uh, that's good. However, he's also not a dumb kid, meaning he <laughs> knows his value. He knows what he brings and more. I think it's more the question of Minnesota wanting to lock him down. If that means that you're going to have to make some other necessary moves around him. And I think that's what goes into maybe the Victor Zach Parisi conversation, which is you'd rather ink this guy long-term now and suffer maybe a year or two of some cap casualties, if you call, if you can do it, um, rather than risking him. Because I, I think, again, in a perfect world, you want to get Fiala long-term, you want to get neck long-term, and certainly Caprizov long-term. There's no question about it. The, the problem is, you know, the money isn't there. If you really think about it, the money it just isn't there. So if you're going to ask me out of, all those, out of all those three players, who's your number one priority, I
0: don't think anybody – hesitates that it's Kirill Kaprizov. I don't think yeah, so. I so. I, d- I definitely agree. I also think when I look at the expansion draft, uh, I know a lot of people have been talking about Matt Dumba and Jordan Greenway. I think Marcus Foligno is definitely on the table too, which I think would be really tough to see. He's, he's, he's proved his worth a little bit. uh you know, at $3.1 million entering the season. Um, I, I really liked his game. Uh, I really have my, my second to last question here for you, Nick, before we, we, we hit my boy Victor here. Um, Joel Erickson Eck, uh, there's no doubt this kid's going to get some sort of a payday uh, from his oh, year $1.48 million that he's making right now. My question is, what is the range do you think that Joel Erickson uh, is at? And is this one more of a potential for a bridge deal, knowing that this is his first breakout offensive year? 100%.
1: This is definitely bridge
0: contract worthy.
1: And let's say this again, I feel like the front office gets Caprice up done first. And what that does actually is even from the team's perspective, it goes back to Eric's Ek and says, you know what, we're going to bridge you. And I think at the end of it work where Eric Ek is at is somewhere between three and four and a half, he could push five, honestly, 19 goals. But again, a lot of the stuff that doesn't make his stats What's made him such a good player this year? Um, Erickson was a guy that gave a lot of defenseman's fits, a lot of uh great transition plays defensively, and I think the biggest area improvement for him was in the place and the face off dot. Um, I, I think for him, that's where I see his range, and I think it's easier, meaning that it is a breakout season for Bill Guerin if you have 97 signed to go, you know, listen. We're going to have some relief here in the next couple of years. If you can hang tight with us, we can still get you what you, you know, what you deserve, but here you go. The other question is how do you have that same conversation with Fiala, who I think was already on a pseudo bridge deal.
0: That's going to be the tough one to me is Kevin Fiala. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that one. A hundred percent moving over uh, to Victor Rask 54 points or 54 games played this year, 10 goals, 13 assists, 23 points, a plus one rating uh, only one penalty in the regular season. How about that one? He's not Uh, an angry guy. Yeah. (laughs) Seven playoff games, no points, a minus two stat line for him on this one. Under contract at $4 million, a cap hit, if you will, for one more season of the Minnesota Wild. A lot of people very disgruntled with number 49 and Victor Rask. Um, I disagree with them. Shocker. Um, Yep. But here's why. When I watched Minnesota and there were times where still, uh, and I think a lot of people reverted back to the ways of wild teams of old there were times where minnesota was hemmed in their own zone i think the first half of game seven i thought minnesota was really under duress i think that's where victor rask really started to shine i thought that his defensive responsibility and his ability to make simple plays to alleviate pressure or just get a puck deep were fantastic i know he didn't have any points to show for it I know he's not a flashy hockey guy. I know he's not the best skater. I know he makes way too much friggin' money. I get it. I understand it. I get it. But at the same time, you also look for guys that maybe go under the radar that make the right play that that goes unnoticed. And I think that for Victor Rask, especially being a centerman, Dean Everson put him in a lot of situations, especially we saw him a couple times out in the playoffs at four on four. And a lot of people were saying, well, look at this boneheaded move by Dean Everson. Why is this player out here? because he's a lot more responsible and makes the right play for not being the most fleet of foot a lot more than a lot of you folks out there really realize, you know, he was a guy that if he had the puck at the point, if anything, it was getting filtered back down low. He wasn't a guy that was going to crash the crease and, you know, make a nice T drag around a defender. But I thought for him, he does so many little things under the radar very, very well that, if I'm Bill and I'm Dean Emerson, I understand why he's in the lineup because I think that he's earned the ability to at least get a kick at the can because he is defensively responsible. We talked about it earlier in the year that he's a utilitarian player that you can slot him up and down the lineup. He does a lot of little things right that don't show up on the score sheet because they're usually plays to alleviate defensive, you know, offensive pressure in the D zone or get a puck in deep or across the red line. And he actually plays with a little bit of poise for a guy that like we talked about is not the most fleet of foot.
1: You're right on all that. Here's the problem. Victor Rastomi is right now in a very advantageous position to be bought out. Yeah, I know. Um, And, and that's the part that sucks. Uh, I don't disagree with any of that Um, for a guy that, you know, and again, people can whine and, complained about his contract it wasn't a contract that Bill Guerin signed it wasn't a contract that even Paul Fettin signed he acquired and if, the contract, and if
0: you looked at him statistically coming up to that point I don't even blame Carolina for signing him right so at, at the end of it you know that may come down to a cap
1: casualty with him and yeah again he he does some really good things he does make you question mark a couple of other things um I think that again you buy out his contract right now your cap it is at 1.33 million dollars I believe so you're saving quite a bit um you're saving actually I think a grand total if i'm if I'm not mistaken of uh, 2.6 yep yeah. so you're yeah, saving 2.6 million. Um, so that's all. That's a good chunk of change. And then again, because it's double the contract length, since he's only got one year, they only have a 1.3 million dollar cap hit that would be on the docket for 2022-2023. Noah, that's a pretty easy pill to swallow if you're if you're Minnesota, um, especially if you get, you know, if if Bill Guerin has got a plan up his sleeve, which I think he does. I, I I agree with you. I think there's a lot of conversations, especially out there uh, close to Lake Erie. Um, and Slash Lake Ontario, if you want to call up there, especially with some of the high-level players that are, let's say, not happy with where they're at. Um, you have some flexibility there. And yeah, three million dollars doesn't seem like a ton, but for a cap strap team, which a lot of teams are, that three million could mean the difference to being able to make a deal work or not. So, so I, I think so.
0: So is the factor here? Um, would you say Nick Benino? One, do they bring him back? I think that's a factor for where Victor Rask sits. And number do. two, does Bill Guerin have a have a, uh, an idea in mind to go for a big fish on the market? I think I those think are the two does. factors that. Yeah.
1: Hundred percent, and I think again, when you look at you know the center depth for Minnesota, it needs improvement. It needs more skill. It needs more speed, uh, in my opinion. Um, and I think you know, especially with soft and what Zuccarello does, can you imagine having either? Let's just put the two names out there. It's either Sam Reinhardt or Jack idle between those two. That would be freaking nasty. And if there's one thing Bill Guerin has not has shown, I should say, is he doesn't if he doesn't want to wait, Um, he does not want to do a rebuild. I think this team is trending up. I really do think that the Minnesota wild under Bill Guerin and I love the job Dean Abbotson has done. If he's not at least a finalist for the Jack Adams
0: award, that's bullshit. I'm sorry. So, so it's interesting. Um, Also, I wonder if the wild wait, wait for some of these moves until after the expansion draft as well, just to see kind of where they're at as well. I think so. Yeah. But, but, but I want to posit this to you that I, I didn't anticipate doing there's a lot of people that think that Dean Everson's coaching uh, strategies in the playoffs were boneheaded. That his matchups were boneheaded. That his line combos were boneheaded. I I had the same reaction that you did too. I don't know where they're getting that from. What what matchups were you looking for? I think I
1: think <laughs> we have to understand is you know you can throw any line against the Mark Stone line. Good freaking luck. Yeah. You know. Again, sometimes you're just outmatched, and really the matchup is you have to survive. The other part of it is um when you're the visitor you do not get the matchups half the time that you want it's the home team that gets last change um so you you can only work with what you got and for dean you know if, so what's to say this if, if you're going to go down the minnesota wild roster just not even knowing line combinations right and says does that roster beat that roster if you say yes um you're lying i hate yeah. to say that you're lying and for the fact again as we discussed for dean to get at game seven out of the squad to, to, and at times, like I said, some of the starts for Minnesota were really good. Sometimes I just felt like they just couldn't get that bounce. They couldn't get that goal. They had a goal called back. And you talk about, you know, turning points in the series, you know, had Mark Randy Fleury not made an incredible save, had a goal not being called back hashtag Mark Randy Fleury, initiating contact, but I digress. So but they made up that call again in game six so i'm actually happy to see that kept that consistent because that was a very light call as well in yep, goal interference. i agree let's move on um no uh, for dean evison and I, I think again just the style of play changed under dean evison they're they're much more like balanced hey, they're balanced and yeah. hey they're taking the play to it they're not sitting back they're not you know waiting for a transition team i, I think the coaches have did a wonderful job and at the end of it i don't for the people are saying that's boneheaded. That these are the same people who want to uh, capture lightning in the bottle and still be able to plug in something and charge their phone with it. It's like it's not going to happen. It, it's not realistic.
0: You know, it's it's interesting when we talked about the Miami RedHawks. You mentioned report cards, right? Dean Evanson, his coaching tenure has been short, and I've already seen people say, "Oh, well, here we are. Here he is, another first round exit. He's a great developmental coach, but can't get his team over the the one freaking year." You know what, Nick, I've never gotten a chance to do this on the podcast. So I'm gonna do it for the first time. Shut the fuck up, man. This is this is, <laughs> this, is this is ridiculous. Like <laughs> if you're telling me that Dean Evison didn't take this team that Bruce Boudreaux had and move them into a better location, you're freaking kidding yourself. Like, come on.
1: Now, to be fair, Kirill would have been different. Um, but still at the end of the day, I, I just the, the difference, especially under the, the blue line, especially the biggest difference would be Dean Evison allowing guys like Dumba just to, to do what he does more often, meaning there's a little bit more exposure in the back end, but again, like separate conversation. Uh, Dean also going up, Ryan Suter trying to go up and actually, you know, this team was actually starting to look with hmm, North Dakota's forecheck, where it seems like all five guys are below the freaking top of the dot. Uh, where, we, just where, suffocating we actually,
0: you. where we actually had the pot for like extended zone time.
1: Right. Exactly. So, and again, you know, it's a game seven. It could have gone either way. It really could have. Um, Vegas came out with a game plan to physically absolutely destroy the Minnesota wild. And at the end of it, I believe that was the turning point in that series. I think if, if it was a skill for skill game, that's a much closer game than the scoreboard and I still think it was honestly. Um, but I think at the end of it, you know, they just ran out of gas. I, I'll, can just, I'll continue to repeat that. Um, I do feel like this organization is in very, very good hands. Both with Dean Evason as the coach, as well as Bill Guerin as the helm of the GM. Uh, There's a lot to be excited about
0: here. Yes, there is.
1: And 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 granted, again, we talk about this in pro sports. Miracles don't happen overnight. You know, you're not going to take a team that was bounced in the first round of a play-in round or however you want to call it, and then magically turn them into a a team that's going to magically walk through Vegas and Colorado I mean let's let's let I me mean, let's just give them the argument let's say they do beat Vegas do we really expect this team to go against Colorado which has owned the wild all year now you could argue that if they somehow were were to pull it off they're the favorite to win the Stanley Cup I would think that's probably yeah. it but
0: and, again and, you're, and a Colorado team that owned the St. Louis Blues who really owned the Minnesota, Minnesota wild. wild yes yeah
1: Um, so it's like, yeah, you take, you took a cup contending team, a true cup contender to seven games enough where, uh, Pete DeBoer actually, you know, tipped his hat quite handedly to the Minnesota wild and say, you know, they were expecting to have that battle. So wait a second, an opposing team is expecting to have a very tough series. That's the best compliment you can get by losing a game seven is, you know what? Yeah, we won, but that's a hell of a hockey team when a, you know, a coach like Pete DeBoer, who's had a very good pedigree in the playoffs and just hasn't had a chance really to raise the copy at himself. Um, wow, that's quite the, uh, that's quite the compliment. And this team is going up and they're not down. So there's yeah. a lot
0: to look forward to. I definitely agree. I honestly hope I would say for the upcoming expansion draft, I just hope they don't take Cam Talbot. I know that's weird to, to think about, but there's a guy that I think, you know, it, you, you deal with the loss of the expansion draft for what it is. You're going to lose a, a, a decent hockey player. Let's, yes, you, not, you know, but I think that with Kacken still developing, I think having Cam Talbot back uh, is really important there, but nonetheless, we digress. We've been, we've been rambling on about the Minnesota wild. Nick, do you have anything else to add before we uh, say R here? Yeah, actually I do have
1: one thing. Um, for those fans who watch this team this year, and if all you're going to focus in and on is the game seven loss, yeah. remember it was like in the regular season watching the squad, they had a chance to win every single night. This is a fun team to watch and they're only going to get better. This is not a team where – You know, this is not like the Anaheim Ducks a couple of years ago where their core is falling apart at the joints because their bones are turning into sawdust. No, there's a lot. There's a very good young core here. Uh, Again, Kaprizov, I mean, seriously. I mean, it's not like you're a cup contender. You've got all these veteran, you know, past their prime guys. You lose in the second or first round, and are you going, now what? Do I have to blow the whole thing up? No, this team has got a very – they, part of the roster still intact. You're going to resign guys. Uh, you're going to have a very similar looking team next year. And you hope that maybe a couple of those changes could be very significant. Maybe not, but I don't think no matter what changes happen that this team is going anywhere else, but up, I think this is an improving team and that's got to be exciting. Um, Colorado in um, Vegas. I mean, one of these teams, is going to lose this series and imagine the question marks they're going to have, with all the money that Vegas spent over the, over the off season, if they lose in the second round and for Colorado with Nathan McKinney and that top line, if they lose, well, what about them? Are they at a the turning point? This is a different area, a different time of, you could say the juvenile age of this roster for Minnesota. They are looking at, well, that was kind of house money. They're playing with no pressure against Vegas and they're looking at next year going, okay, guess what? We had experience and we're going to come back fricking better next year. This is a great time to be a Minnesota wild hockey fan. And yeah, it sucks to lose in the first round, but remember, it's not just about losing the first one. It's how you did it. And this team fought and absolutely had a chance to win that series. They just came down to a a better, more uh, battle tested team in Vegas. And uh, you should be absolutely looking forward to October for next season, because this team is going to be, I think a top four, if not top three team in the Western conference You can put my mark on that May 30th, 2021. I'm calling it right now.
0: I've got his phone number in case anyone wants to text him. Yeah. Right. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's a, it's a, uh, um, it's a process really it is. And I think we're, we're we're, we're building those stepping stones into the next step of that process. And I think this group uh, has been tighter and non disgruntled compared to Minnesota wild teams in years past. And I think that you've, youth rejuvenation as well as the the mix of veteran players that they brought in has really created a healthy mix in that locker room and a great coaching staff and gm around it so i'm really excited as well it sucks they lost in game seven of the first round but you know what uh as minnesota sports fans would say there's always next year right because that's (laughs) usually usually where we're sitting but nonetheless nick maybe for
1: maybe not if you're a Timberwolves
0: fan but i digress (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, the Timberwolves will be lucky if we have it next year. We might uh, join the Oakland A's in relocation. Anyway, right, <laughs> that will do it for episode number 63. We haven't even mentioned our guest. We're going to have Brett Larson on again uh, in this upcoming week. Uh, probably going to come out Wednesday morning. Now, before you say, whoa, 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 but you just had Brett Larson on, what are you going to talk about? I think we might have some tricks up our sleeve. We're going to have to see what we can, that we can come up with here. But that will do it for episode number 53. Catch us uh, probably next Wednesday and then, of course, episode number 64 the following Sunday. We're going to tackle – I don't even remember what team that we have up next on the docket. I want to say it's either Denver or Western Michigan. I think it's One Western. Western uh, Michigan, yeah. But nonetheless, we'll be here. We're going to talk some hockey. For Nick Maxson, I'm Noah Grant, and that will do it this week for the Huskies Warming House podcast. <laughs> Come in, they score! Ripped in! A bomb from Pervix!
1: So Dana Rasmussen fires and she scores! Dana Rasmussen for the Huskies alongside! Joy Caprichov in for a chance to win it! 42.6 seconds away from wrapping up the school's first ever title.